When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a weekly podcast about board games and such. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well. I'm just wondering what the end such is. You'll find out. Oh, boy. My name's Michael Walker, and without further ado, we're going to get this show on the road. First, we're going to talk about a game we played last year, or we reviewed last year. Games we played this week, news, and why it does not matter. Our feature of the game, which is Core Worlds, a fantastic deck-building game. And then our topic of the week, which is out-of-print games. Why are games out of print? Should they be out of print? Which games do we want to see back in print? And such like that. Mark, I have had big life-changing moments this past month or so and has brought me in line with all sorts of new non-gaming people. So we've brought Skull to the table with people who don't play board games normally. And I already said this last week, seeing, you know, people's eyes open up when they play games that aren't a thing. But this is going to be about Skull. It's just one of those things where you explain the game and they say, oh, it's just, they, they look at it, it's like, oh, we're just going to be, you know, flipping up tiles and, you know, betting, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, then the tiles comes around and it comes to me and then I say, I bet three, <laughs> right? And they go, why'd you bet three? And then they look down at the table and they're like... Oh, oh, right. And it's like this, you suddenly see in their eyes that they understand that there's this, you know, multiple layers to this just basic game. And it's just a fantastic feeling. I cannot stress it enough that I just love this hobby that we're in for many and multiple reasons. So it's pretty strange, actually. I heard you call over from the next room asking who starts off the next round in Skull. And and in that game, whoever calls the previous round, whoever bids first is the one who leads it off. And I was amazed you got to ask the question because in all the games that I played with you, you are always the one who calls it off first. That's what I mean. That's why I was I was confused because I always, used, you know, have to start. So I see, I see. I was, I was quite shocked at the implication that somebody else, much less a new player, had bid before you did. So true. It's in that context, actually, that we can talk about the Aeurus, because the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment is about deception, murder, and Hong Kong. That's what we reviewed last year. And when new people show up to public game days, or indeed when I have new players show up, deception is one of the games that I tend to put up, because yeah. one of them is, is that the structure is very familiar. You know, it's a procedural and people like to – it's a little bit more uh, tactile and visual than a lot of the other games. I love the resistance. I love code names. I love all those other things. But Deception in some ways is a little bit more accessible even than code names in that it is slightly more visual. It seems a little less thinky in a, in a number of ways even though it's a little more rules heavy. Whether this is illusory or not, I don't know. But actually last time at a public game day when new people showed up, there were about uh, five or six new players and we brought a Deception. It was a huge hit. At least it seemed to be. We haven't seen them since. I have to assume that was because of my personality rather than the game itself. And so we remain big, big fans of Deception, still still in rotation on the reg. I think, it. I think it's mostly, it's much like code names where there's no upkeep to the game. Once you put the cards out, there's very little. Like the the forensic scientist, he's got a lot, you know, rotating his cards and such. They but, do, yes. But everyone else, you know, it's all statics, all talking. You don't have to worry about anything else except just thinking it out and having fun. Absolutely. So that's the game we reviewed last year, Hong Kong Deception. So, Mark, what did you play last week? I finally tried Welcome 2, which is that neighborhood-building roll-and-write game. And it really, I think, my, my current impression, this I've only played about one and a half roll-and-write games, Welcome 2 and uh, Let's Make a Bus Route, if you want to include that. It seems to be the apotheosis of all the bad Eurogame trends of the past five to ten years brought together in a nice little package for me to ignore and hate. The two trends that I'm talking about are, number one, no player interaction, and number two, uh, point salad scoring. 
There's 12 different scoring categories. You get a little bit from this and a little bit from that. And maybe if you do this other thing, and, you know, maybe this will go to 3, 6, 9, 12, whatever. Or maybe this will have triangular scoring. Maybe this other one will have arithmetic scoring. Who knows? And when I, the, the rules were being explained to me, it really was just the case that here's the round structure and the rest is just scoring. And so it's very accessible, so I can certainly understand the appeal on that score. But there's no interaction aside from the very, very, very narrowest bit of competing to get to these certain goals first. And it's just this crazy little, it's not even a push-your-luck game. It's There's a slight gamble that you can take in some instances, but you don't have those good elements of push-your-luck, like the better dice games like Raw does, for example. I love push-your-luck when there's a, there's a good enough uh, structure around it, but just when there's no interaction and there's a bazillion different ways to score, I'm sorry, I just tune the hell out. And it's reasonably pretty, but when the theme is so pasted on, how can I even get grabbed by that? And again, I, I couldn't help but think that I really wanted to sell the people in this 1950s suburb pizza, beer, and uh, hamburgers. That's so true. Well, that's the one thing I liked about I haven't we haven't played very many of these roll and write games, but generally they seem very heads down solo games. That's what I liked about let's make a bus route, right? Because you like sort of head people off, and if people got to places before you, you had to you know you lost points by going over other people's routes. So there was a little bit of interaction there. So, Yeah, there was definitely a bit of that, and it definitely felt a little bit like your your turns were building on each other because there was this spatial aspect of gradually growing out rather than all these just individual pointillistic little data points that might congeal to some sort of scoring strategy. Anyway, Welcome To was perfectly inoffensive on the one hand, but on the other, I really do find it to be the sort of crystallization of a whole bunch of design philosophies that I loathe. So if this is the new trend for lightweight Euros, namely Roll and Write, I I think I might have had it my fill already. I'll give another couple a try, but I might be done with this stuff. And that's Welcome To. Welcome To. I got to play Feast for Odin, the, the Norwegians. It's a new expansion for Feast for Odin. We hate Feast for Odin, so we were hoping that this expansion would bring it back to the table more, except that Feast for Odin is a fantastic game. The original game has a animal, because it's Uwe Rosenberg, you have to have, you know, mating and pregnant animals and getting more offspring because that's what he do. This one, in the original, there was this, you know, uh, animal strategy, but it wasn't very strong. It seems, n- even though none of us really concentrated on it, but after we had played that one time, we could see that it seems as though this expansion weighs hev- more heavily into that sort of uh, strategy or makes it more viable. It's not jade anymore. <laughs> nice Gugong callback there. It's strange. I would have expected more cards because that's definitely been the pattern for Ua Rosenberg expansions in the past, certainly for Agricola, which set the mold with endless series of cards. But the biggest change for me for the Norwegians is the new action board. And one of the minor sticking points for me in Feast for Odin without the expansion is how the action board doesn't really change much with the number of players. But when you're playing with the Norwegians, it the, the different action segments really do scale for the number of players. And not only that, that's already good. And it helped uh, encourage us to butt up against each other a little bit more. The competition for action spaces was much more pronounced, even though they were all new to us. The other benefit was that the new action spaces just seemed to be slightly better balanced. Money felt tight in the early rounds. I really felt the it was hard to get what you wanted. And that extra little bit of tension, I think, didn't bring it up to things like Agricola or uh, some of the other really, really tight Ua Rosenbergs. And as I say, although I love A Feast for Odin, I wish it were a little bit tighter in some of the, the aspects like player interaction, like resource scarcity. But yes, the getting animals is hard. And it really, really, really paid off. I mean, it paid off for me. I didn't pursue an animal-heavy strategy, but I needed some pigs to fit into some of the new huts, which are also an excellent ad- addition in the Norwegians. You get these little artisanal huts. So it's uh, locally sourced, handmade, uh, fair trade uh, kombucha huts. Local, I like it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're uh, tended with white people with dreadlocks and uh, bad tattoos and unfortunate facial hair, and they, they will pr- prepare for you. Captain Hipster? Gotcha. Absolutely. They will prepare for you uh, their locally sourced uh, kombucha, and they were into kombucha before it was cool. Exactly. And so I was making my little kombucha, and they needed a pig for some reason. And it was hard to get the pig. I had to work for it, and it paid off. And so, yeah, I liked that feeling, that added feeling of tension. It really did, despite the fact that in terms of rules overhead, there's practically none. You know, just explaining the rules differences are are negligible. But the new action spaces are great. The new colonies are great. It's a wonderful, wonderful expansion. I highly recommend it. Now, I did a a migration strategy, so I didn't see... Uh, how the feasting did, but it looked as though feasting might be more difficult because there's a lot less of the free food spaces. 
Right. I personally didn't feel I, I I could see that being a possibility. We've only played it the once. That's right. The aforementioned uh, artisanal hut that I had gave me salt meat, which is a marvelous thing to feed your Vikings. They love that stuff. And so I didn't really feel a solid pressure for feasting for feeding the uh, the Vikings. Which is to say it felt very much like previous iterations of A Feast for Odin where, you know, feeding people is largely an afterthought and you, you might have to spend some Vikings to do it, but it's not a huge deal. But absent that, maybe. Who knows? It, I, I'm very much looking forward to exploring it and seeing how it changes some of the fu- fundamental aspects. Yeah. And that was A Feast for Odin, the Norwegians. What'd you play? Got to try Architects of the West Kingdom. I'm going to blame this squarely on you. Walker is a slave to the hype and this has been getting some good buzz. Well, I want to take this over because... Oh, do you now? I do, because I want to group it in with another game that I played. No, I no, want, no, no. They don't carry, deserve... No. I want to group them both wow. together. I had this whole thing wow. for this. We also played a game called Byzantium. Yes, we did. Which is also a worker placement game. No, it's not. Yes, you do. You place workers... You place the things on the spaces, and it gets you on your board. Wow. Right? And it gives you troops. So you're doing these actions, just like in, in Architects of... Yeah, they're the same. The they're they're exactly the same kind of game because in both of these games you do actions. They're, Absolutely right, one hundred percent. Exactly the same game because precisely you the same. Do actions because you do actions that aren't fun. There's nothing. <laughs> there's, there's no action that you say, wow. "Oh my god, that's really interesting and fun to do." There's no fun in either of these games. Okay, well we can we can circle back to the relative merits of the games independently, but structurally they are not similar it, even I remotely. Say, I did not say structurally. Okay. I, just meant, I meant the fact. In that, that you didn't like either of them. No, Fine. not that I didn't like them. The fact that they had a, preth- a plethora of actions to do, and none of them were fun. Okay, okay. Let's talk about Architects of the West Kingdom, first of all. <clears throat> so, just because this is your fault and you feel embarrassed it about is, telling me to get this game, I, I, even it's, though it's no good. It's true. It, it was on, it was on a, a bunch of top ten lists for last year. You listen to other people? No, I just look at the list. And, <laughs> and so I thought... That there was something there. Sometimes the buzz is good. Sometimes sure. the, the BGG top hotness list, you know, it usually doesn't lie. This was up there for almost the whole time. When their next game was uh, announced, you know, there was quite a bit of buzz about it due to the fact that people enjoyed this Architects of the West Kingdom. So let's talk about Architects of the West okay, Kingdom. Yeah. This, this was put up by Garpill Games. These are the same people that do uh, Raiders of the North and X of the North and Y of the... So Architects of the West Kingdom, apparently it's, it's something something about Car- the Carolingian Empire. Reading the rulebook, I almost thought I was being trolled. I thought I was, I was being punked or something because the intro to the theme says, you're builders and you're trying to impress the local feudal lord. And I didn't know we made games like this anymore. I didn't know that you, you, you controlled wealthy families that were trying to impress a visiting potentate. Are you sure you weren't reading the Kalis rulebook by accident? I know. I thought I was having flashbacks. And this is a relatively standard worker placement game, except for the fact that, number one, spaces aren't exclusive. Most of the spaces any number of people can go to. The nominal twist is that there's this notion, which parenthetically is entirely unthematic. It makes no sense whatsoever in the context of any kind of remote narrative that the game might be trying to peddle, thin though it may be, is you can capture workers, sell them to the prison, and or spring them yourself. Now, this kind of encourages you not to bunch up too many workers in the same space, in theory, because actions get more powerful the more workers you go there. But that, of course, means that you're having... You're just doing the same thing over and over. Now I get one wood. Now I get two wood. Now I get three wood. Now I get four wood. Ooh, fun. And then because there are four guys there, you're more vulnerable in theory. But really, all that this amounts to is spending a turn during your tempo to liberate your guys by one way or another. And it just didn't it, it didn't add any substantive player interaction. You just went for the largest available targets. There wasn't any notion of targeting somebody to free up an action space for you. If this were about freeing up an action space for you, so it's to remove a block, then maybe there might have been some more substantive player interaction. Anyway, it's not my job to fix the game. But in the ways in which it was not incredibly dull, I'm going to get this clay so I can build this building, this building gets me points. Yay. It just felt like a strange overly complicated way of cycling your workers because you know you need you in a game without rounds you need a ga- you need a way to cycle your workers and, and so fine but it just ugh, I, it, it did nothing for me it was entire i was entirely unengaged the entire time except when making fun of it so i don't understand it is getting some good buzz i'll grant you but i don't understand why people really enjoy architects of the west kingdom i thought it was well it was short i will give it that yep. I th- well, I think that was deliberate. I think partway through, we were sort of like, this is just going to be more of the same. How does this end? Okay, let's do this. Sure. 
and yeah, I'm I'm not gonna repeat all your points because I already said it. There was just no action that was in, overly interesting. It was like you know, okay, now I've done all this, now I can do this. You know what I mean? Like yep. there was no like build up. It was just like cycle and repeat, cycle and repeat. And just as a minor gripe, it has this quote-unquote virtue system. And in the rule book, they kind of sort of make it out to be some sort of interesting paradigm. And ever since video games started messing with some broadly construed system of ethics starting about 15, 20 years ago, I've found these systems to be aggressively uninteresting. And as a former ethicist, I find it borderline offensive how they just want to lump in moral status as another kind of resource. It, 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 there's nothing different or cool about it. Path of Light and Shadow came close to being almost okay, but it was more just a, 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 a function of pick which side you want to be on, and that chooses what kind of card effects you're going to have. Here in Architect of the West Kingdom, it was... It was just this, some other track to go up and down, like every other bloody Euro game. Well, I just ignored it. You saw what happened, right? Because I didn't waste a turn to get, you know, two or three guys back. I always had the most guys in the prison. So right. every time that came up, down the virtue track, or, you know, getting the... Debts. Debts. Debts, debts, debts. I had like 10 debts by, you know, near the end of the game. And I then my rest of my whole strategy for like the last four turns was to get rid of all these debts. It was, ugh, just... And you did it by the virtue track. Again, there's this notion. I I don't even know what kind of thematic explanation they would give. If you bottom out on the virtue track, you just start acquiring debt. And if you top out on the virtue track, your debt disappears. That at least I can understand. Maybe, I guess, people think you're so moral they're not going to collect on their loans. But if you're really evil, you suddenly acquire loans with no collateral. It's, it's, It's strange. Anyway, whatever. Architects of the West Kingdom. Architects of the West Kingdom. All right. So let's talk about Byzantium. Byzantium. What's your beef with Byzantium? Okay, so you, you say that nothing you do in Byzantium is any fun. That's right. Do you have anything more substantive to say about that? No, I'm just saying that there's there's this combat system, but but you really have no control over it. You just have to have more. And that, it just seemed to be always the case that it was just a procedural thing. It's like, I'm attacking, I'm going to win. It's just how much the defender's going to, or how much the attacker's going to be beaten down slightly so he's not... So he's a little bit less powerful next turn. And then he just goes around taking things and you get more troops or you get this. There wasn't like this interesting thing to do in the game. I just found it dull and uninteresting. Byzantium is probably my second favorite Martin Wallace game. It is a rough sort of historical snapshot of the 7th century in the Eastern Roman Empire mostly the rise of Islam and the final death knell of the Persian Empire. And here are some things about it that I think that even you... I'll address your your spurious complaints in a moment. But here are some things that I think that even you can acknowledge. Number one, it it works uh, as a multiplayer conflict game, which often doesn't happen. It can go to two to four. I've played it at all player counts, and it works even as a three-player conflict game, which, as we discussed in Quartermaster John the Cold War, is very, very difficult to do. I take from your stunned silence that you agree with me. I agree that it works. But, <laughs> but you un- still don't think it's fun. It's yeah. interesting and, and not fun. Yet. Sure, sure, sure. But it doesn't fall prey to the sort of systemic structural problems That's that right. most multiplayer conflict games fall to. That is correct. All right. Another thing that it does is it gives you a fair amount of historicity and a sort of uh, asymmetric playing positions with respect to the uh, Arab forces versus the Byzantine forces with no special rules attached whatsoever. It's purely a function of the geography of the map and the starting resources that see you have the Arab forces be ascendant, the Persian Empire die, its, its final death, and for the Byzantine forces to be seriously, seriously weakened. And that's kind of cool. You get a sort of broad historical brush narrative, and I'm leaving out the things like the, the Bulgars. I'm leaving things out like whether Constantinople falls and other, other little bits, all with a minimum of rules crumb. And that's one of the reasons why I tend not to like Martin Wallace games. You know, you end up with three pages of rules questions on Board Game Geek because he wanted some weird connection on Birkenhead in, in Brass, as an example. And the fact that Byzantium really works and gives you a, a, a lovely little bit of historical flavor, I think, is, is, is fine. Everyone else at the table, I think it should be noted, thoroughly enjoyed the game. Agreed. I'm not going to deny that. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have good qualities about it. I love the balance because everyone plays both sides. And Completely you, unthematic, but it works mechanically. But it yeah. works mechanically, right? And you have to, and the way you position yourself, right? You can't, you know, turtle yourself in because then you won't be able to break out and you have to sort of balance your score because your score is going to be the combined two. And I, that part was interesting uh, mechanically. But just for themat- not thematic fun, but just for playing fun, I just didn't. I was uninterested the sure. whole time. And sure. I can respect that. But and one one minor note, and I, I will completely respect that you didn't enjoy it. That's fine. 
you were dead tired <laughs> that night. You looked dead on your feet. Now, I've seen you enjoy games when you're dead on your feet. But even though you were dead on your feet, you, un- you, under- you internalized the rules of the game. And, you know, we got it to completion in under about, it was about 90 minutes. Correct. Which is, anyway, I think Byzantium is, is, is very impressive. It doesn't have an involved combat system. And indeed, one of the other players at the table uh, started making fun of, of uh, a hypothetical critiques. Like, oh, the battle system needs like a seven-phase card structure and, and everything. Yeah. yeah, the battles are incredibly simple. Mostly you're just sieging towns and just roll, roll some dice, take some hits, and you take the town. That's about it. But Which is great because a lot of, a lot of games, whether they're con sims or just simpler games, siege mechanisms start getting kind of nuts. Uh, but Byzantium does it a great job. Anyway, Byzantium is a, is a relatively older game. It was published uh, over 10 years ago. You can probably track down a copy for cheap if you're even remotely interested. I'm a huge fan of Byzantium, and I'm glad we got it to the table, and I'm sorry you didn't enjoy it. All right, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. First, I'm going to talk about Sushi Roll. It's only because at our group we've enjoyed Sushi Go quite a few times. And I just feel it doesn't get to the table much just because it's a, one of these other deck builders where it has a plethora of cards and you have to choose which ones you're going to use and then you have to unsort them at the end and for the weight of the game, it's just not worth all of that trouble. So I'm wondering if this dice system, I have no idea how it works, but if it's a much easier setup and pull down and gives you the same sort of feeling, I'm sort of looking forward to trying it. Why would anyone play Sushi Roll when they could play Fairy Tale? That's what I want to know. Sorry, seen. Sushi Go. Sushi Go. Go. We haven't played Sushi Roll yet. Just because even even with the best uh, symbolism edition, it's still fairly rough for new players. That's fair. I just I, Sushi Go never did anything for me. I couldn't. Uh, it was one of those games where it made me start to think maybe I don't like drafting games after all. Maybe I just like Fairy Tale. And then Paper Tales came out, and it's like no, I, I like drafting games with the word tail in there. There you go. <laughs> Must have tail. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So there's going to be a standalone expansion for Quest for Eldorado. This is uh, Reiner Knizia's take on deck building slash racing, which had an expansion which we've only tried a couple times and we had mixed mixed feelings about. Anyway, this isn't actually calling it a standalone expansion is a bit of a misnomer because what intrigues me, I have no confidence it's going to be pulled off well, even by the good doctor. It's a standalone game that is linked to the quest for Eldorado. You can play it by itself or what you can do is you can play what we're told will be half a game of quest for Eldorado and then half a game of the golden temples. And so they're linked together in that way. I have never seen a game structure things like that well. Uh, to be fair, if anyone can, it's probably Reiner Knizia. Uh, so I'm I'm very curious. I'm not even cautiously optimistic. I'm just very curious about what this is going to look like. And as we've commented in the past, Reiner Knizia seems to be on a bit of a tear lately. And so I'm very, very keen to see all his new output independently of whether or not it actually pulls off this impressive feat of game design. So that's supposed to be coming out later this year. And that is called Quest for Eldorado, The Golden Temples. All right. There's a new Scotland Yard game coming out. It looks like they revisited and it looks interesting. Because I'm not saying Scotland Yard is the best game, but for what it does, I think it does a fairly interesting job. It's a great gateway game. Gives you know introduces people to that sort of you know hidden movement genre, and I'm interested to see how this new one works. It seems like it's very much streamlined. There's some dice, a little bit of writing. Looks very interesting. Does it have the weird hat? No, they used to they had sunglasses too and hats. They different editions had all sorts of different things. So it would be cool if they put something in just as a callback. It would be. I couldn't help but notice that USAopoly, the purveyors of fine design work that they are, are going to be producing licensed versions of Talisman, of all things. So Talisman, the classic Games Workshop game of a roll of d6, move that many spaces, I'm only slightly exaggerating, was rethemed as Relic, which was the like Warhammer 40k version of Talisman. And now there's going to be licensed versions of Talisman. And of all the game properties to license out... I cannot see why you'd pick Talisman, because Talisman, despite the fact that it's very, 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 and I'm using this word deliberately, simplistic. It's over 20 years old. It's ridiculous, and it's, it's, it's awful. Look, there are lots of 20-year-old games that we love. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, like back in its time, when it was the only game out there, we played the hell out of Talisman. Like, we played it all the time. But I'm very sorry for you. Exactly. Then we, then we played other games. Yes. So I don't know what this is going to look like. It just seems like a strange candidate. Normally when you get these sort of knockoff rethemed versions, you get something like Risk, which, although less approachable than people think it is, is definitely more approachable than Talisman in a number of ways. Or something like Monopoly, which again is is perceived – or 
something even simple like sorry or whatever. But there are lots of games that I could imagine being great for for endless retheming. Like I'm kind of surprised that Carcassonne doesn't have a billion different rethemed versions. Catan's got a bunch of rethemed versions, and that that's worked out pretty well. Some of them are even interesting. I just I just, I just don't know. We should that should have fit into my next segment, which is who asked for this? Exactly. And we should have put that in there as long uh, as well with uh, Euphoria. Ignorance is bliss. It's a expansion for Euphoria. Who who asked for this? There are people who really really like Euphoria. Interesting. Yeah. And and then therefore the the title is good for them then, ignorance <laughs> is bliss, <laughs> something like that. Apparently, Time Stories is going to get rebooted. Time Stories is a game system that I thought was occasionally interesting, but had a number of number of systemic problems that that has dogged it in terms of the way its expansions have been released, and largely in terms of the structure. People got tired of being yelled at by Bob, for example, which I can definitely understand. So apparently, they're going to. Uh, completely redo it over at Space Cowboys. These are the people who uh, put out time stories. They're going to end what's called the White Cycle, and now they're going to have what they call the Blue Cycle, and the, which are going to consist of standalone modules. So you don't need the base game anymore, which was one of the criticisms of the, the previous iteration of time stories. They're all going to be self-contained. They're going to be less focused on acquiring items, and they're going to be more focused on character differentiation. Apparently, each character is going to have their own deck. That Looks potentially interesting. They're going to be releasing the first version of this later on in the year, and it's going to be called A Midsummer Night. Now, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, but Midsummer Night's Dream is probably one of my least favorite Shakespearean plays right up there with Hamlet. Never liked Hamlet. I'm, I'm more of a Julius Caesar guy, which I, I realize uh, Julius Caesar doesn't get the credit deserves. Anyway, moving on. Uh, I'm just interested to see what they do with the system because even though I didn't really like Time Stories, it was one of those first games that showed me what you could do with cards and what you could do with these kinds of game components in the same way that I, I kind of like unlock in some of its more uh, novel applications. So uh, maybe they've got some more good ideas and maybe they don't, but I'm looking forward to at least seeing what they do with the next iteration of Time Stories. And lastly... They made some sort of roll and write game based off of some other game. I don't know, say Monopoly. How's that sound? I'm sure there'll be something every week of something. You want me to edit in whatever uh, actually no, happened? I'm or? sure it's Monopoly. If you look somewhere, I'm sure you'll find someone's developing a Monopoly roll and write game. In related news, since we started recording this episode, 17 versions of Gantz von Clever have been released. All right, and that is the news and why it does not matter. Now on to our feature game. Feature, feature, feature. Which is Core Worlds. By Stronghold. So Core Worlds was put out in 2011, so this was three years after Dominion. So kind of in the second wave of deck builders, just when people were starting to experiment with what you could do with the formula. And it's worth comparing it to Ascension, which was released right around the same time. Ascension being one of the early deck builders that had the notion of a common market and and cards coming out. Ascension seeing... Uh, you know, design derivatives such as all the Realms games and uh, Fards of Infinity and things like that. Whereas Core Worlds was one of the early deck builders that sought to, to think, hmm, what can we do to sort of use deck building within the confines of a slightly more traditional Euro management type of engine? Because that's something the vibe that I get when uh, playing Core Worlds. It had, it's had two expansions, which we'll talk about in The Fullness of Time, Galactic Orders and Revolution. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Core Worlds? Well, Core Worlds, like you already said, is a deck building game, except it actually has a theme and actually works. <laughs> and so you're planning ahead because it tells you all of the final scoring positions and what you need to have. So you can sort of, you know, pick which ones you're going to shoot for and plan your deck accordingly. You really need to watch what the other players are doing because if they're going heavy into a certain genre, which we'll talk about later, you might want to flip to the other side or, you know, make sure that you're not competing every time against the majority of the players. And then you're removing your useless cards. There's many ways to burn cards out of your deck. You're making sure you get rid of all the useless ones in a timely manner. And then you're taking advantage of the turn order. Because, be it good or bad, turn order is very important in this game. I'm sure we'll talk about that soon enough. So that's what you're doing in Core Worlds. There's nine rounds. You're building a deck. You're trying to maximize your score by building... I'll just go into it very quickly. You're building either infantry or spaceship fleets. And your majority of your points are going to come from these worlds that you have to conquer. And the world will have a certain defense value, be it a mixture of both these armies and fleets or all of one or all of the other. And then you have to deploy troops and match that strength and then take the planet over. And then it will give you one 
victory points, two, more energy in, in order to do the, these things, and three, maybe have a special ability on it that will help you as well. So right off the bat, let's talk about one of the ways in which I think it's it's useful to talk about different deck builders, and that is what kind of currencies do you have? Because we can start with the simplest kind, which is Dominion, where you basically only have one currency, arguably a different kind of currency if you want to talk about things like action efficiency or things like that. Uh, then you get into other deck builders like Thunderstone, where you have two currencies, one to buy and one to bash. In Core Worlds, you if you have three core currencies, and then a couple of other things which are sometimes currencies, and that, that that's part of what I find interesting. So you have energy, and energy is definitely the early parts of the game going to be probably one of the most scarce elements you're going to run up against. You use energy both to buy cards and to play cards, more on that in a moment. And then you have the two kinds of combat strength that Walker just talked about. You have infantry and you have Air, you basically have ground forces and air forces. I know there's no air in space. Please send all your emails to Neil deGrasse Tyson at – where does it even work? At sciency.com. Sciency.com. Thank you very much. And managing these three different currencies is very interesting, especially when, as you often get, some cards that play with – turning one into another, like converting ground force into air force or vice versa, or turning energy into more force. And then they're the ones that turn cards into more force. And you're starting to look at managing your hand in a different way. And that is, in a non-cumbersome way, a lot of the dynamics that I find really interesting in Core Worlds. Because at the start of your round, you don't really have the sort of lightning fast turns that you have in a lot of other deck builders. At the start of your round, you have to plan your subsequent actions and figure, okay, where's my energy going? Where's my actions going? What am I going to use these cards for? And planning out the use of your hand, it's not nearly as puzzly or as complicated as, say, a game of Mage Knight, for example, which is another game that is a deck builder and then a whole bunch of other stuff on top. But you do have to make very, very careful choices about what you're going to take from the middle and what you're going to do with your hand. And that's one of the things that I like in a deck builder. In in turn order as well, because... uh... Sometimes there's a scarcity of some things in the middle. What we're talking about is there is a draft that comes up every turn, and and it all comes from the same deck, and there's the planets and the infantry and fleet cards are all in the same deck. They come out, and you keep drawing until you have at least X number of cards based on the number of players. Okay, And sometimes there are very powerful cards or cards which are obviously better than the rest that had came, that came out that turn. So this is where the turn order comes in and where planning your turn really matters. You either A, have to make sure you have a bunch of troops out there so you can attack immediately or get those troops out before anybody else does and, and take the planets that you want or purchase the cards that you want right away. That's a lot of what the tension brings to Core Worlds, especially when conjoined with the strange tempo that it has. Let me first off acknowledge what you said before. Turn order is hugely important. It's so important, in fact, that one of the first things that they quote-unquote fixed with the first expansion was that the endgame worlds were no longer bound by turn order in quite the same way. Going first in the last two rounds in the in the base game without any expansion was hugely deterministic because all these incredibly valuable worlds come up and if you've got your ducks lined up in a row you just take them and no one can stop you and so one of the first things they did in the expansion they said okay well if you could take over one of these end game worlds immediately after somebody else does there's no harm no foul to anybody else either you all get to share and that was a necessary introduction i think because even then turn order is not something you manipulate it just passes from round to round and if you have first dibs you have first dibs I'm not a huge fan of it. It's not a massive problem in the game, especially when you've got that fix for the end game. But it isn't super awesome. However, let me then segue into the other thing. Tempo is hugely important in Core Worlds, and that you can finesse a little bit. Because one of the things that you can do in Core Worlds that you can't do in other deck builders is you can send cards off to essentially a holding box, which is called your War Zone. Units that that you use to conquer worlds don't go straight from your hand to go do something. They instead have to be played out, they have to be deployed to your War Zone. And they can sit there for the rest of the game. You can deploy something into your War Zone and just leave it. There are some broad opportunity costs for doing so, but this does two things. Not only does it mean that you can look over at the rest of the table and figure out what your tempo needs to be, how much time you have to do various things, but it also means that some of the bugbears of traditional deck builders, this notion of when to trash, how to cycle cards out of your deck, it's built into the system with a minimum of rules overhead. And so you really have that extra ability to control how fast you cycle through your deck by virtue of this element. And that I think is really cool. It also offsets the turn order, like just talked about because you can actually look over and see what people have in their war zone you can see which plants are safe and which are not and sort of time out if you can you know adapt and and you know and defeat the turn order monster 
And if it's the case that you're later on in the turn order in a given round, you can just deploy all your units and just know that you'll have you'll be ready at the start of the next round and not have to worry so much about turn order because you can be last in turn order and still be a- ahead of the game if all your units are primed and ready and the right thing comes out. It doesn't defeat the turn order monster, but it kind of helps mitigate things neatly. So that brings up an interesting point, Mark, which I want to talk about since we're talking about deployment and taking over planets because they've got a fantastic way to thin your deck out like I was talking about here, when you take over a planet, because it's like super thematic. Once you've taken over that planet, you can use one of these units that you use to take over the planet to garrison it, like, i.e. defend it or whatever. So you slip it underneath, and now you've culled your deck out. And I think that's a, a, a thematic and interesting and cool way to cull your deck. I agree, Walker. Thank you, Mark. It's a good point. Another thing to note about Core Worlds is that I think the card variety in Core Worlds is is definitely better than a lot of other deck building games. The cards aren't all unique. Sometimes you have two or I think even three copies of a given card coming out. But by and large, the sheer variety of units that comes out is very, very impressive. And it really does add a, 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 a great sense of character to your deck. In a lot of other deck building games, you're going to end up with, you know, three or four copies of a given card and you're just cycling it over uh, endlessly. In Core World, typically not. You know, that, that unit that you bought even in the second or third round is going to be very determinative about how you're going to be playing and what you're going to be able to take it over. So the couple that with the relatively large variety of cards that are in the game, I find that every deck feels very different from every time I play. Yeah, not only that, they're graduated. Like we said, there are nine turns in the thing, and they're all divided up into groups of two. And every time you get it to a new phase, you're actually taking a new deck out for the draft, and they're graduated. They get more and more powerful, which is a mechanic that I love. And like you said, there's no, like in other deck builders, we have, you know, multiple piles and you see them for the whole game. This is, you're going to have cards that you'll not see maybe in, you know, five games. You haven't seen this one particular card because like I said, you might flip two or three cards up and you're done for that phase, you know, and you might have, you know, about 15 to 20 cards left that you haven't even seen that game. You're on to the next, on to the next phase. And that makes the game different and change it every time. I love it. All the while having that stability of what you talked about, of the end game cards, the big worlds that are worth tremendous, the eponymous core worlds that are worth so many points, you know what they're going to be right from the start. They're printed right on your, your player mat. And so you know that you can build towards it. One of them gives you more points for starfighters. So you can try to buy a whole bunch of starfighters and then take it over if, you're, if you've got your ducks in a row. So you get that variety, but at the same time, it doesn't get unmoored from some sense of control and planning from the start of the game. Yeah, I want to stay on the cards because the art on these cards is amazing. Like, ridiculously amazing. When you, Well, ridiculously amazing when you compare it to other deck builders. Yes. Right? Like we said, there's all the cards are fairly unique, maybe one or two, but the art is, it's like the sci-fi, robots, more about that later, and infantry, flamethrowers, really cool starfighters. I really enjoy the art. I, I, I agree. I think the art is very, very compelling. The planets are, are, are a bit dull. They're all just, you know, random celestial spheres. It's true. <laughs> Not much. But the units themselves and the different tactics cards and things, I, I, I do really like the artwork, yes. They could have, yeah, when I, now that you said that, they really could have done something better with the planets. They could have had, because they all, they're all the exact same shape and yes. size. They could have, you know, had panned out a bit and, you know, seen the galaxy from different angles and did a little bit more to make that part more interesting. I think they dropped the ball a little bit on that now that you mentioned it. But other than that, the actual units and events and heroes and all the other cards other than the planets pretty amazing i'm gonna stay on the cards because not only do you uh purchase cards and have a new uh binary every turn there's also a very interesting uh pre-game draft where they're like zero turn cards you put them out everyone gets two and it changes your you know your starting deck i'm sure that came out one of the expansions no it didn't that was in the base game that was in the base game well there you go so it slightly modifies your deck and sort of gives you, could give you a certain strategy or a direction to go in. Yeah, you start out with a fair bit of asymmetry. Every faction has their own unique starting hero, which gives you a, a, a little bit of independence there. And you can play with the turn zero draft or not based on how experienced people are at the game and how long you want it to last. More ways to see new unique cards, more ways to differentiate the decks. Absolutely. Yeah, for asymmetry and, and strategy and cards, I just want to talk about this part now is the fact that there are there are robots, there are vehicles, there are uh, the starships are all cert- are named a certain way, and 
other cards trigger off those cards. So you can sort of mold your deck into this kind of like a robot deck or an infantry deck and have all of these things working together to get these interesting combos off. And you actually have time to do that. And and like we said, sometimes there are not a lot of cards, but more than, you know, more than likely you're going to get one or two cards that you're really looking for to make your deck unique and, and work together. Absolutely. I think it scales very well with number of players. You talked very briefly about the heroes and the fact that they even have different decks. That's a a little bit of a bad part, just the fiddliness of, you know, this is a card, that's not a card, and having, you know, yet another draw deck to come from. That's an expansion element. Doesn't overstate its welcome. I think it's very, you know, I think it's not too bad. Nine turns. Sometimes it might be a bit long, but I... I, Maybe a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I think... Overstay its welcome is, of course, highly subjective, but I do think that Core Worlds is longer than it needs to be, especially given if you have four or more players and any of them, either because they're not familiar with the game or just because dispositionally they, they, they take rather too long because the, game, the game's length just scales upwards with another number of players. There are more cards available in the middle to be purchased, so people have to spend more time looking at that, more turns to be taken, more opportunity to have to reevaluate what you're going to do based on someone grabbing a card that you wanted, and Core Worlds can easily be in excess of two hours under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances case, depending, by which I mean four players. If you can get a four-player game out in 90 minutes, I'm very impressed. And we're it, it's it's a good, relatively meaty game, but it's still relatively pure deck builder. And I'm not necessarily in the mood to do relatively pure deck building for that long. Uh, it, it goes up to five. I played Core Worlds, I think, once with five, probably never again. My preferred player count is three. I really think that at three, it's, it's the best you get that you know, large degree of player, uh, uh, player asymmetry and different player situations, different deck contexts, and you, it's not going to last too long. But I, I really do think that the length is one of the serious issues of, of Core Worlds. Well, I think when you have players that know what they're doing, and that will lead into the next, my last good point is like the flow. You already talked about the character boards, having all the victory conditions on them. It also has all the whole turn structure and the actions that you can do. And I think it makes it a lot easier just to make the game flow much better. It all sort of makes sense. You know, you get your, your cards and your energy and then you buy and you refresh and it all sort of like flows together. There's nothing like sort of out of place. And I like how that works. Well, it's weird. It flows fine. It flows relatively well, but for a deck builder, it doesn't flow at all. Most deck builders, you draw your hand, you play your hand, you draw a new hand, that's it. And you just keep going round and round and round until the game ends. Core Worlds, on the other hand, is a relatively more pedestrian, Euro-style kind of structure where first you draw, then everyone gets resources in a sort of an upkeep phase, and then you put out everything on display, and then everyone takes actions, and then you do the end of the round maintenance up and upkeep. So it's not particularly cumbersome as far as upkeep goes. I agree with you. It flows fine. But for a deck builder, it flows terribly because most deck builders have much, much better flow. True. If you, if you label a pure deck builder, then I'd have to agree. This isn't merely a question of label. This is this is this this kind of dovetails with my general point about the length of core worlds. True, but I mean, if you call Mage Knight a deck builder then it's ridiculously long and cumbersome. Sure, but you're doing a lot more in Mage Knight. You get a lot more resources that have nothing to do with your deck. A lot more else is going on. Again, this is not a criticism of Core Worlds. I'm just saying that on a spectrum where you have pure deck builders like the Realms games, like Correct. like Dominion, and on the other hand, you have relatively meaty games which have deck building as an element, and I'm not suggesting Mage Knight is at the end of that spectrum, but it's definitely closer to the end of the spectrum. Uh, Core Worlds is definitely between those two things. Agreed. Another mild gripe I have about it, and this is really, really minor, is I wish, given the quality of the art, I wish that the theme shone through a little bit more, because the theme is actually really cool. The theme of the game, which never becomes apparent through actually playing it, is that you're basically space barbarians predating on the prostrate corpses of these effete wealthy people who cast you off generations ago, and you're just coming from the outer rim, outer edges of the galaxy, going closer and closer to their homes, you know, taking over everything that they have. Yeah, I, I just wish a little bit more of that came through in the gameplay. As it is, you're just, you know, building a space empire and gobbling up planets, which is fine. Yeah, and put two bad points in together. It's the turn order, which we've already talked about, and card draw. I did say that, you know, you're normally going to get the cards you want, but, you know, you might be in the wrong turn order, so you're not going to get them. You might be pushing for a certain type of deck, and the card's are not coming out or people are taking them before you can get them or you're just not getting what you need and you could 
you, there is a chance of being shut down a little bit in this game. Absolutely. It is worth noting, and this is a, one of those minor little clever flourishes that I really think helps make Core Worlds a, a, a unique experience, that just before the final round of the, the final two rounds of the game, when the eponymous Core Worlds come out, everybody reshuffles their deck. And so there's a guarantee that cards that you purchase near the end of the game might come into your deck because you've probably been pruning your deck through this garrisoning me- mechanism that we talked about. And you've probably been, if you if your deck is too bloated, you might have been pruning it further by keeping units out in their war zone just to, you know, sit and spin. But if that if you didn't get that end of game reshuffle, you know, some of your later buys might seem irrelevant. And I do like that that nice little touch to just make sure that everybody gets to use their full deck near the end of the game. My last negative one is I think it's a little heads down. Like in the few games we played, it's like, okay, I'm attacking this planet. I get this, this, and this, and this. And you're like, okay, whatever. You, you know, you, you have that and you take the planet and you're not really, you know, watching what other people do. They've got cards and they're on the far side of the table with little, you know, special abilities. You have no idea and you're sort of taking your own turn. And then there's no real player interaction except for the, you know, the usual Euro. I took that before you got a chance to get it. And that, that would be it. So a little heads down. Yeah, I would say that Core Worlds has a tiny bit more player interaction than a lot of other deck builders, but that doesn't say much. So I agree with you on that one. So there's the first expansion, which is called Galactic Orders. It introduced more cards, but it also introduced this element of six different factions that you can curry favor with. And in a clever little bit, the base game cards all have these little icons that are useless until you have the first expansion, so they knew where they were going with things. This isn't one of those issues where they had to backport everything and or introduce these awkward things where you have to cross-reference and look things up about how they work in the expansion. And what ha- what these do is they... There's endgame scoring, so if you have more influence in a given faction because you've been buying and playing more cards of a certain faction, you'll get points for that. But additionally, you can cash these tokens in for special abilities and for extra little bonuses. And in a game like Core Worlds, where everything is very, very tight, you never have enough of anything you want. You never have enough cards, enough actions, enough energy, enough combat strength. Having that extra tiny little flexibility introduces very, very little rules grit but allows you to get done what you want to get done and gives you more tools at your disposal. And that, I think, is absolutely marvelous, although it does further bloat the length of the game because you can get more done. But that extra little bit of flexibility and the excellent integration makes uh, makes the first expansion for me a must-have. Yeah, not only that, it gives you reasons to draft certain cards. Like this card, you might not want it, but you can see the faction that it gives you, the faction that it is, and it'll give you a certain special ability or no one else has that faction yet. So you're going to be getting the majority there and it gives you new reasons to draft certain cards. I really like that part. Some bad things. I think there's a a separate board, which can pretty well be eliminated from any game that I play in the future. And that's the events. And what's the name of the other thing they add on the... Enhancements. Enhancements. They're an event deck. It just seems to waste a lot of time because as you, as I said, you're flipping cards up until you have either a uh, two planets and two units or a overall number. Well, one planet Sorry. per player. Yes, one planet per player and one unit per player and at least a certain number of cards. And every time you draw an event, you put it on top of the event deck. And whatever happens to be the top event at the time is the one that's going to go off. And it just seems to really not do much, hinder, just waste time in my opinion. It's a little ancillary, I agree with you, and that is evident by the fact that in many contexts I forget to resolve them. And it's just, again, it's a little more, it, 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 I think it highlights the fact that Core Worlds is a little more cumbersome in terms of phase structure than a lot of other deck builders because you're trying to make sure that the tableau is, is perfectly set up for the coming round and you forget about all this other stuff because it's literally off to the side. And I don't know that there's a, a better way to integrate it. The same thing is true of, of the enhancements, which were mostly introduced in the second expansion. They go off next to the events and they're another thing to buy. But most of the time you're just focused on the big pile of cards in the middle and you don't look off to the side, to the sideboard with this other thing to buy. Well, it's just because it's got huge text. The other cards are fairly simplistic. It's give me this much infantry strength, this much fleet strength, done and done. These enhancements are like a whole, I'm not saying like a whole paragraph of text is huge, but in comparison to the other symbology and or text, it's, it is a lot. And sometimes there's like 10 to 15 cards in there, you know, you know, going through them all. I think if Core Worlds becomes a game of your group and you play it a lot, enhancements will be fantastic because, you know, you'll be more into the game, you'll be reading those, you'll be ready to go. But as a game that you only pull it once in a while, it's like, eh. 
I'm just going <laughs> to concentrate on, you know, these fighting these planets. I'm not going to worry about that other stuff and let's get her done. Well, mo- most of the, as I say, most of the enhancements were introduced in the second expansion called Revolution. And I really do think, I, I don't object to Revolution, but I really do think that most of the elements of Revolution are, are very much like those enhancements that are ancillary. They're easy to forget. They're a little bit more cumbersome than they need to be. One of the, one of the key things that it introduces are these special tactics that correspond to heroes. And they're meant to give heroes an additional level of flavor, which I think... I mean, it's nice. It's a nice impulse. But it's not that I felt that the heroes were dull to begin with. As I said, the card variety is very nice. And heroes are just another type of unit. And the units are generally kind of fun. And so I didn't think that the heroes were especially dull. And now the way that it works is you shuffle together a whole bunch of da- a bunch of cards for each of your heroes. And if when you deploy a hero, the top card of your of your hero deck corresponds to that, you draw it. So far, so good, I guess. It's, it's, a, it's just a little weird. You know, the timing elements introduced there seem a little bit arbitrary and screwy. You can mill your hero deck to try to get the right one up to the top by discarding cards, making cards another resource, which is fine. But the, the key problem is, and this is a bit of a conceptual gripe, and maybe I'm just being unreasonable, it introduces a card that is not a card. It introduces a class of card, you touched on this briefly before, that is not a card for the purposes of other effects. You know, when when an event says you have to discard some cards, or at the end of the turn you can only retain one card, or in order to power this ability you need to ditch some cards. Well, they're referring to the other kinds of cards, not these other cards, which aren't cards. And I, I don't like it when that happens. It just annoys me. And it introduces an extra little rules grid and kind of an ancillary hand. And I, I just, I'm, I'm generally happiest when I'm just playing with the first expansion, uh, not with both. I don't object to the second huge deal, but I, I just think it's a little, little ancillary. So to sum up, I really like Core Worlds, especially once you add in the, the first expansion. I don't think personally that it's a top tier game precisely because it's usually a little longer than I want it to be. But you do get to do some cool stuff. And as a deck builder, it is very novel. If you think you're you're if you like deck building but you're a little bit tired of the of the standard formula and you haven't played Core Worlds, I highly recommend it. On the, it's on the strength of Core Worlds that I tend to check out all the works of the of this designer, Andrew Parks. And while I haven't found another game that he's designed that I've liked as much as Core Worlds, he usually at least does something interesting. Little flourishes, little touches, little elements that make things neat, with some minor exceptions. And so if you like the thought of a deck builder that really gets a lot more mileage out of the engine than some of your more simple ones, not that we dislike the simple ones here at So Very Wrong About Games, I really think that Core Worlds is probably the one to beat. Yeah, definitely. I... I have tons of deck builders. Uh, we have several people in our group that already have this game, yet I still sought it out, got it, still you know looking actively for the last expansion that I want, and it's going to be part of my collection for sure, and I enjoy playing it every time. And that is Core Worlds by Andrew Parks and Stronghold Games. Under the topic this week, which is out-of-print games. Why are they out-of-print? Should they be out-of-print? Which ones do we want to see back in print? Which ones do we pray were out of print. <laughs> okay, I did not I did not think of a whole bunch of games that I wanted to be out of print. And just to be clear from where I'm I'm coming from this, I I decided to artificially limit myself to games that I that for which I would want a straight reprint. It's not games that I wish were redeveloped or redesigned or heavily tweaked or reimagined or anything like that. I think that's a separate issue entirely. These are games that I check to see that are not currently in print that are fetching high prices on the secondary market that I wish someone would just say, "Okay, give me give me the files. I'm print this thing just as it was." Maybe with a facelift, I don't know. But these are these are games that I don't think, oh, wouldn't it be great if it were the same but improved? That, I think, is a separate issue entirely. That That's how I approach the topic. All right, so before we get into specific games, this, I have some just generalized stuff here to talk about. One of the things I have written here, if you want it, you can probably get it. So even if it's out of print, on the secondary market, Board Game Geek, eBay, more than likely if there's a game you really want, if you have the money to pay for it, it usually doesn't go like a, you know, it's a board game. Like some of them go dumb, but realistically, if they don't. I don't know about that, man. There's a lot that get, gets pretty dumb. If, if your fundamental thesis is that with unlimited money that many consumer goods are available to you, I have to agree. That is a, that is, that is a true statement. But when I think back to some of the things that I've looked at to get for other people, whether it's that hyper-obscure Kickstarter-exclusive thing or a very, very old printing of a game, it's hard to pay 5 10 
20 True. times the retail value of something. True. Kickstarter puts it in a whole different category, in my opinion, though. Like, I'm talking about just a, a general retail game. When you go to Kickstarter, then it's it's a lot smaller print run, especially if, you know, for all the exclusives, blah, blah, blah. Well, let, and let, let's, let's talk briefly. I wish, as a general policy, I don't object to publishers giving gameplay uh, Kickstarter exclusives, you know, Kickstarter exclusive components that have gameplay elements. But I certainly wouldn't be sad if that category died. There's one in particular. Uh, listeners ask us fairly, fairly on the reg. Anytime we mention Dogs of War, which is a worker placement game we both really like by Paolo Mori, er, people crawl out of the work and ask us, do you know where you can get the Kickstarter exclusive factions? And the answer is no, I don't. Uh, because they really do fetch a ridiculous price on the secondary market when they show up, which is not very often. And that's an example of a tremendous shot in the arm in terms of variety. Let's not even talk about things like uh, Fenrir and all the other exclusives for Blood Rage. When they got reprinted in, in the digital one, that was a, a bit of a, a, a furor, and so a lot of people wanted to, to get access to that. But quite frankly, any anything that has added gameplay value that was Kickstarter exclusive, I wish would be more commonly available. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Last thing, another thing I printed here is if a wise man said wise maybe not wise but anyway a man said if it is good enough it will be automatically reprinted i do not agree you're allowed i have i have have a list of i have a list of games here you're allowed to do that yeah well those games are probably not very good oh really yeah Uh, i'd be surprised Uh, oh that one yeah no no there there are a number of these you like but anyway it is a commonly held bit of board game wisdom, and I don't agree with it. I did look over some some. There was tons of lists out there. You you out of print games that people want. Type yep. that in Google. There'll be lists, and there's there's. A, I wrote down very quickly a few games that are already getting reprinted that were on that list. Yes. All right. So uh, some reasons why licensing issues. That's another. That's a big reason, like Pillars of the Earth, blah blah blah. There's lots of games, Forbidden Stars, lots of games that just cannot be reprinted due to licensing issues. Ah, but Forbidden Stars is being redesigned. It is, but uh, part of the I, I can talk about that later. I think part of the the appeal to me of Forbidden Stars is the world that it's in. Sure. Um, and then rights, just having the rights to the game. We've seen things with Upfront and other things where it's confusing who has the rights or Absolutely. or whatever, and then it just makes it impossible. Well, the, the number one game that I wish would be reprinted is not going to be reprinted by virtue of production costs, and that's Heroescape. So let's get into specific games now. I wish Heroescape were still in print. I love me Heroescape so much. I don't even... I, I mean, of course I wish there were more Heroescape expansions, because that's when Rob Davia was actually putting out good stuff. But even just the even just the, the, the core elements of Heroescape, the stuff that was already published, I wish that was still in print because it was such a marvelous toy. And the reason why it's out of print, I think, is because of increased cost of petroleum products and increased wage costs and increased transportation costs. Because you got truly epic quantities of pre-painted terrain and miniatures in any HeroScape product. And that, I think, is why we're not going to see it again. When Wizards of the Coast kind of half-heartedly had a dalliance with maybe redoing something similar. It was their weird uh, battle of Magic Magic Gathering, Battle of the Planeswalkers, Arena of the Planeswalkers, my apologies. wasn't terrible. It was it was okay, uh, but the terrain didn't have that same visual impact. The deck building element was weird, but that's a separate issue entirely. And the minis weren't pre painted. So, that being said, we really should review Heroescape one time because that, like you said, we both love it. It's oh, fun. such a fantastic game. Yeah. Oh, those are look. Yeah, well, I looked at your list. Kinkopolis. Yep. Love me some Ginkopolis. It's it's going for like in excess of a hundred American dollars on the secondary market for a game that retailed for about thirty. Never mind, there's an expansion too, right? There, there is an expansion. I, I still haven't tried the expansion. Actually, again, it's out of print. Uh, that's available for slightly less insane quantities of money. But I also have here written the expansion for Clash of Cultures, which I luckily got. But I hear that it's a huge demand. Clash of Cultures is a game that I really don't get to play enough. It's it's, it's sort of like a weird, you can call it deck building sort of only because, you know, you're putting cubes in all these different, then it's not actual cards, but you're putting all these cubes in different things that sort of combo up and let you do more actions and, and, and it's a sieve game and it's, it's very interesting. And the expansion was very cool because it had elephants and, and different cultures and, and it was well done in my opinion. I only played Cash of Cultures the once uh, without the expansion. It didn't really grab me. It kind of made me thankful that other Civ games had gotten rid of the map. I'll, I, a So Very Wrong About Games favorite, Hansa Teutonica, it's out of print. 
Last printing was about five years ago, and now copies are going in excess of 100 bucks in the secondary market. Wow. There was some talk on the part of the designer of maybe retheming it, maybe public, you know, it'll probably end up being like zombies or Cthulhu or, or pirates oh, or something. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe pitching it to some new publisher. There hasn't been much news out of that front for a while. But, you know, that that's this is part of the, the you know, the downside of the tremendous release schedule. Now, as, as you pointed out, the tremendous quantity of new games, actually, a lot of it is reprints of good older games. If we had done this topic six months ago, there would be a number of games that I would have talked about needing a reprint that have They've had reprint sense, and that's wonderful. But it seems strange to me that a game like Hansa Teutonica would go out of print. Actually, I, sh- I want to bring that up quickly. Is another just a plain thing from the beginning is with so many new games coming out, with with being more streamlined and being with new game mechanics, why do you need these games reprinted? Well, because Hansa Teutonica, and we've talked about this before, remains unique and was streamlined when it came out all of, you know, 10 years ago. True, but I just think there's so many new games coming out. I, I don't see why people need to be, you know, thinking about these, you know, reprints. Just, <laughs> just get a new game. There are so many new games coming out. Who cares about what particular game you exactly. play? That, I, I'm, sure you'll, I'm sure you'll find one that's similar and you'll like just as much. That's a strange position for a board game critic to take. No, I know. I'm just, but I'm just saying, I'm just wondering, with, you know... You can see why there would be a demand for a reprint if the market was so strangled. It's like, oh, you know, it's hard to find something new, and I wish they reprinted this. But there's like, you know, over a thousand games every year. You'd think, you know, people would be content with, you know, what was coming out. Well, but in okay, but in terms of the games that we've already just listed, in well, the games that I've listed, I don't care about what you say. In terms of things like Heroescape, like Constantinica, like Ginkopolis. these are unique games. They are. I've got a big collection. You've got a big collection. But there are there are. Even more than other games, there are unique aspects to the gameplay and to the design and the presentation there that makes me wish it was more widely available. True. And if I didn't have copies of these things, I'd be very disappointed. This is true. But I think my point is still valid. No, I don't think it is. Are you still talking? Yeah. Chaos in the Old World. Love it. Wish it got reprinted. And same thing, I hope it has the same theme. Yeah, that's definitely a licensing issue on that one. Oh, yeah. And there, at least, you can have the consolation that Eric Lang has been, you know, fiddling with that kind of core formula for a while. And or you could play the vastly preferable, in my estimation, Cthulhu Wars, which is incredibly similar, but a little smoother. Um, I wish on on the general topic of, you know, weird uh, uh, American nonsense, I wish anything by Richard Hamblin would be reprinted. I'm talking about things like Merchant of Venus, Gunslinger, Magic Realm. I know that Stephen Wonokor of Stronghold tried to get tried to track down the rights to Magic Realm and then basically announced that it wasn't going to happen and was not able to provide any more details. So Probably because he read the rulebook. Oh, no one's actually read the rulebook. It's uh, a myth. Well, well, you get past the setup, and then you pass out. Oh, the setup's the worst part. Exactly. No, no, I, I love Magic Realm. I taught myself how to play. It's a totally playable game, if, if you know what you're doing. And I know that some people are now saying, oh, but Merchant of Venus was reprinted. No, it wasn't. A redevelopment was produced with two rule sets, neither of which were very good. And the, the, the biggest violence that the Fantasy Flight version of Merchant of Venus did was they have the classic version, which they kind of claim is the original rules, but it's not. I want the original rules. I want an actual reprint of Merchant of Venus. It was a great, great, great game. My favorite pickup and deliver game by far. Haven't played it in a long time. I should really get that to the table. And his other work, uh, his other work like Gunslinger or Magic Realm or even Victory in the Pacific, Richard Hamblin had such a unique vision. Again, we're talking about unique games that have fallen out of print that you can't get anymore. They offer something that the rest of the market doesn't. And I think the the tremendous success of games like Mage Knight, for example, and a lot of people compared Mage Knight to Magic Realm in a lot of ways. They're very, very, very different games mechanically, but in terms of a meaty, mechanically satisfying fantasy adventure, there's not a whole lot. I mean, mostly you get bloat, like your Arkham Horror or your Eldritch Horror or your... Uh, Descent or whatever. Or Descent or even Talisman. Yeah. You know, mostly you just get more without necessarily making it more interesting. I have Carcassonne the City. Carcassonne had uh, like a sort of standalone game that you could play. You built this really cool wooden, you know, walls around the city. I remember being fantastically interesting. I have a friend that lives out of town, so I don't get to play it much, but I wish they'd, I wish they'd put it out again so I have more chances to try it. And that there, at least, you know, there's always five other different Carcassones to, to print and reprint. So I guess I'm not terribly surprised that they don't go back to some of the original ones. And it was markedly more expensive well, than all yeah, the other Carcassones as well. Plenty of more wood. Exactly. No, I'm just saying I can understand why they, they yeah. haven't reprinted it, just on, uh, under the aegis of things. Another Euro game that I wish they'd reprint is uh, Tribune Premise Inter Paris. It's my favorite worker placement game. 
It's sadly out of print. Again, you know, in excess of a hundred bucks on on the secondary market. And again, it's it's different from all the other worker placement games in that there's also a, this set collection mechanic with the cards that you need to go get. There's much more substantive player interaction. I've I've raved about Tribune a number of times on this and other podcasts. Have you really? I've never heard of it before. <sighs> But when I was talking to somebody else and said, oh, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I, I, I can find you a copy. Sure enough, you can find a copy, but not at a reasonable price. It kind of surprised me. And it's a bit of a shame because it's also, um, you know, it was by Karl Heinz Schmiel, who a lot of his work, a lot of his stuff is out of print. Die Macher is out of print again. Vashtikt is out of print again. It, it's a shame. He did really, really interesting work and you can't get it anymore. And then just one final note. As, as I've commented before, I'm a big Civ fan. But one of the key requirements for playing basic Civilization is the Western Expansion map. And although Gibson's has reprinted uh, Civilization, I think it it's clear now that they did so largely to maintain the rights. There was a bit of a rights dispute between them and the people who put out Mega Civilization. And so it looked like it was mostly a copyright play. I, I was hoping that with the new edition they were going to put out a new edition of the Western Civilization map. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And I say this in part because most of these other elements... Obviously, all these other things I have, and I just wish they were more widely available. The only way you can play with the Western Civilization map with actually professionally produced components is you have the mounted Civilization map and the paper Western Expansion map floating next to it. And it looks janky, it's unsatisfying, it bothers me every time I play with it. I want a nice combined Civilization map without having to go to a printer studio and pay them a bazillion dollars to do it. Uh, so that's that's a slightly more personal gripe as opposed to all this. All these other things, like, you know, Tribune or, or other games that are out of print, like Quantum or Ascending Empires, all these other things, I want everybody else to be able to play them. But the civil, the Western expansion map, that, that I want for me. There you go. Yeah. How about games that get reprinted that shouldn't have been reprinted? <laughs> Seems to be a big rise in this nostalgic thing that are, you know, going through, you know, game, reprinting games just for nostalgia value that are, you know, games that were actually quite terrible, that are just getting like Fireball Island or Dark Tower, yep. which are, you know, fundamentally mechanically terrible. I've yet to see Dark Tower, I shouldn't say that because I think they reworked it, so maybe it is... It works a bit better. I have no faith in anything they do. It's That's why I was so pleased when they picked up Conspiracy. Conspiracy, I think, is a great game. I don't know if they're going to ruin it. Uh, the, the people at Restoration Games, I mean. We'll see. And then games that that were good, that did get reprinted, we saw Big City is getting a reprint, which is fantastic. Uh, Container got a reprint. Cleopatra got a reprint. And Japur, it just got announced, just got a reprint as well. Fantastic two-player uh, trading game. Looking forward to that reprint as well. It's nice to see the visible effects of ratings inflation and the cult of the new on reprints sometimes. Because I remember thinking that when they were going to reprint Endeavor, that Endeavor was pretty good. And uh, sure enough, it was reprinted and now everyone says it's the best thing ever. I remember thinking that, you know, whatever my misgivings are about Brass, it is certainly the case that the new edition has caused new raptures from a whole bunch of other people who didn't really like Brass before. Uh, so I agree with you that sometimes reprints happen for strange reasons and have strange effects uh, on the overall marketplace. Well, that's going to close it out for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, or you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See, so yeah, I forgot to announce earlier that I will be at Breakout this year in March which is coming up soon. So if you're in, in Canada, in the Toronto area, and you're going to a convention called Breakout, I will see you there. I'll have more information next week. Look for the stunningly handsome man. Eight, the, I am the eye candy, baby. Eight foot tall, six feet wide. Oof. Voice like an angel gargling. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always. Try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.